ora and welcome to Family, Whānau and Disability, a podcast brought to you by Parent to Parent New Zealand. We are here for the many Kiwi families out there caring for a disabled child or family member. We know the journey caring for a disabled or a neurodiverse child is not an easy or a straightforward one. So this podcast is a place to explore the issues that affect us, to share stories, swap tips and even have a laugh or two. We would love for you to join us each month, so make sure you subscribe. Please also be aware that the views shared are those of the individual and may not represent the views of parent to parent. This podcast is brought to you by Parent to Parent. Please note any views or opinions expressed on the programme are of the individual speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent Parent to Parent as an organisation. Welcome to the Connect, Inform, Support podcast, brought to you by Parent to Parent, the non-profit organisation supporting the families and whānau of people with disabilities all across New Zealand. Welcome to Connect, Inform, Support, the podcast from Parent to Parent. I'm Louise, your host, and today we're speaking to Lorna Sullivan about the Enabling Good Lives programme. So good morning, Lorna. Welcome to the programme. Thanks for joining us today. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so what I wanted to talk to you about today was um, the Enabling Good Lives uh, programmes around the country seem to be going pretty well. Could you give us a little bit of an update on that first? Well, I, mean, I could really probably only speak to the um, Manawatu Horofenua uh, yeah. programme, the, the um, Manawakaha prototype. Yeah. But yes, I, I mean, I think we've uh, we've sort of had got 10 months under our belt now and I guess what we're beginning to see are the things that are working and the things that are not Mm -hmm. Um, so starting to get on top of that Um, and yeah I think there are some things that are working really really well and some of the the principal thing I think anyway is the capacity for people to hold personal budget yeah yeah because once once people have that understanding that they can have authority and self-determination and say so over those supports that are provided Mm. that changes things remarkably for people and they start to become more open to what those possibilities um, for a good life might look like Mm. without them simply being defined and and prescribed by a service system um, that makes an enormous difference I think the other real benefits that we are beginning to see is certainly um, early investment funding, which has never been in the system before, that enables um, families and young people to get some supports early to build capacity, competence, Mm. roles in community, develop skills, so that over the longer term they're not going to remain in totally dependent Mm service arrangements yeah yeah. those are really really important and we're now beginning to see the provider sector um respond Mm. you know in a small way because it's there's still it's still a big risk for providers um to to change their business models but we're certainly being able to have different conversations Mm. with providers around individuals yeah and that was the second thing that I wanted to talk to you about today with regarding the providers um what what can providers do to um improve their business to make them more um you know 
attractive to people within the EGR system because now that it's going to become a fairly competitive market hopefully if this takes off so what what can providers do what what sort of when you said they have to change their business model what does that look like well you know historically providers have been able to do only what they're contracted to do mm. and that hasn't necessarily meant that they've met the needs of people mm. they've met the needs of the contract yeah what needs to happen is for providers to actually start to really know who the people are they're serving mm. and to meet the needs of the people. Mm. Because the models that we have now, and it's not the fault of anybody, are really post-institutional yeah. congregate care models where people, if they have a support need, they are required to be grouped together with other disabled people and the provider essentially determines their life yeah, yeah. from that point on. Yeah. So that it's, oh, sorry, carry on. Fundamentally, has to change. Yeah. We we really need to move to a model coherency approach where we ask who is the person, what is their need, mm. how would that need best be met, where would it best be met, who would best meet it, and design our service person by person. Yeah. And that's a very doable. Um, approach mm. but to do that providers are going to need confidence from the ministry that the flexible disability support contracts will be honoured and um, more providers will be able to access mm. Mm. flexible contracts. Yeah so it's a much more tailor-made approach then that the providers have to be able to offer to to users then. Yeah uh, look the way I describe it is providers have to try to figure out in in relationship and consultation with the ministry, how they move from being a service mm. to actually being of service to people. I see, yeah. yeah. Um, because at the moment, we've got a service model that says, well, this is what we offer, irrespective of what you needed, mm. you're going to need to fit this model. Yeah. We need to be saying, no, we, are, we have to understand you, your need, your aspirations, your capacity, your capability, and build our service to support that. Mm. And have there been any providers that you know of who are, who are successful, have been successful in, in changing to do that? Have you got any good examples? Uh, look, I think providers are just beginning to get into that now. And yeah, yeah, I think we are beginning to see some providers who are prepared to take some quite significant business risks mm. in terms of saying, actually, what we've been doing we can't continue to do, and it actually hasn't met the needs of people. Mm. We might have um, we might have kept people safe, or we might have kept people in a in an environment that maybe helps families to feel more confident. Mm. But actually, people's lives are stagnated. Mm. So yes, we are beginning to see that, and certainly it's much easier for the smaller local providers to make that sort of a change. Yeah. Um, it's much harder for the bigger national providers because they still don't as yet have confidence that they know what the model's going to look like mm. and whether that model's going to be rolled out. Yeah. And yeah. it's hard for them to change simply in a local area in response mm. to local needs. So yeah. that's um, not to say that they're not open to different conversations because certainly we're finding that the providers are. Excellent. Sometimes their contracts constrain them from delivering on right. those um, conversations. Mm. 
So it's a it's a holistic approach where the contracts from government need to add in the flexibility for the providers to then tailor make their services to fit the people's needs. Is that yes, that's yeah. right. And I mean that's certainly happening here. The majority of the providers here now have been given the opportunity to take flexible disability support contracts. Fantastic. But there, you know, every time you you. This is why systems transformation is such a long journey, because yeah. every time you pick away at one thing, then you find that the health and disability standards aren't fit for purpose anymore. Yeah. And so even if they've got a flexible disability support contract, they're still required to comply with the health and disability standards that don't reflect the contract. So you know, we will need to start to unravel those health and disability standards yeah. and uh, understand there's a process uh, beginning around yeah. that, so that with the health and disability standards, it's things like basic standard of care and that sort of thing. Well, it's it's basic standards of care, but if you if you're familiar with the standards, they're they're very institutional models. Yeah, um, and and they are not standards that are responsive to the diverse needs of people mm. or the diverse aspirations of people. Mm. Um, so, in a sense, while they look as if they keep people safe, no, they actually keep people dependent. Yes. So people don't learn to become safe themselves. Yeah. They're safe because they're not allowed to do anything. Yes. And, um, you know. Yeah. Um, so it, it is really trying to unpick this whole kind of post-institutional cultural understanding about the capability and capacity of disabled people and what support might look like at that individual level because everybody requires different levels of support yeah. for different periods of time mm. but a lot of the current models trap people into custodial care for the rest of their lives yeah and yeah. Th that that that's big in the culture we you know there's a lot of work to do to shift that kind of thinking about uh, disabled people yes yeah, they're definitely, so, they're definitely a societal attitude change needs to happen. It is, sure. and yeah. it's, it's really a move away from a, um, a, a deficit approach. Everything that this disabled person is is not, cannot do, will mm. never be, to a life development approach that says, well, who is this person? Yeah. What are their talents and abilities? And mm. how do we build those yes. so that they can be sustained? And yeah. Those are very different conversations, really, from the day that child is born. Mm, mm. That's something that comes up a lot um, in discussions that I have with uh, with with friends and and family about the concept of um, deficit thinking versus sort of the opposite. Really, looking at what someone is capable of and how we can support them to do that and to help them where they have more struggles but rather than saying well you can't do that so well you can do this this and this how can we help you to right. use that and that's it and that is that is quite a seismic shift and I think a lot of parents also worry about um like you said about keeping their their children safe in that sort of concept so okay well but but he he's constantly running across the road. How do I how do I stop him? Rather than well, he's capable of understanding this. So if you teach him to stand here, then he can stand here. Rather rather than the whole he can't do this, so stop him. That's right. And yeah. and, and it's often for a disabled person, it only takes one um, episode of kind of 
danger mm. for their life to be stopped. Yes. Um, and we do need to be really thoughtful about, well, yes, it might take longer for this kitty to learn to cross the road safely, mm. but let's persevere with that. Yeah. Now, if, if we come to the understanding that it's highly unlikely that they are going to learn that skill, then we focus on some other things. Yeah. We just make sure that crossing the road, you know, we arrange our lives so that we have to cross as few roads as possible. Yeah. Or could they understand how you cross at a traffic light or could they understand how you cross at a pedestrian yeah. crossing? Mm-hmm. Um, because in effect, what we've done, and families haven't intentionally done this, but the, the outcome is we've traded safety for happiness Mm. and life fulfillment. Yes. So we've got a lot of very depressed, unhappy, unfulfilled, safe, (laughs) uh, disabled people. Yes. Um, And and New Zealand can't waste that potential, and we don't have the right to waste the lives of others. Absolutely, um, yeah. Because of our own fears. Yes, a a life isn't necessarily just about survival. It's about living it and having a fulfilling life. That's right. Yeah, And actually taking risks. Yes. Having failures. Um, if we don't have failures, we seldom have successes. Exactly. And if we look at what brings us happiness in our life, it tends to be the things we've really struggled to achieve. Yes. And been successful. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if we deny people those opportunities, then life is pretty dull. <laughs> yes, it's pretty pointless. I get that absolutely. And there, there seems to be a lot more of that growth mindset within the education system and I know with my kids um, there's a lot more focus on resilience and taking risks and mistakes are all it's okay to make mistakes that's how we learn so it's just a matter of applying that across the board for all people rather than just looking at the the education sector well that that's true um, because disabled people are all people exactly yeah and, um, for some reason or another we we sort of start disabled people down this path of um, somehow you're not quite human or something. You know, yeah. you're going down a path that can only lead you mm. to a, a service life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and there isn't actually any reason for us to do that mm. other than our own inability to understand how we work with that level of diversity. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's again. It comes back to that deficit thinking, that assumption that someone is not capable of doing X, Y, and Z, and also comparing people to ourselves as well, rather than looking at that person as an individual and saying, "Well, you have unique talents and abilities. They're different from mine, but that's fine. That's that's all good. We can work with that." You know. Look, I think it also comes to it. Very early on, what expectations do we have of a disabled person? Yeah. And often we don't have any expectations. Mm. And the message families get very early is all they won't amount to this and they won't be able to do that and take them home and love them and bloody, bloody, bloody. And and I hear families, you know, refer to the adult kids as having the brain of a five-year-old or something. Mm. And I think, well, that's absolutely impossible if you've lived for 25 years you've had experiences that a Mm. five-year-old hasn't had Mm. and actually five-year-olds are quite competent yes (laughs) so uh, let's let's have this person doing having at least that expectation yeah but we have an enormous 
um, sense of we cannot allow a disabled person to fail, we cannot allow mm. a disabled person to have a negative experience. Mm. Um, and what that begins to look like is, well, we cannot allow a disabled person to have a life like anybody else. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Ah. Well, that's, a, that's a, given us a lot to think about. Like you say, it's a, it's a societal shift in attitude as well, where it's about supporting the parents to raise their kids to be independent, you know, and experience life and to not worry about, you know, the occasional failure. That's that's all part of life. Well, we, we seem to manage it with all of our other kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, we almost expect it with all of our other kids. Yes. Um, so there is some kind of psyche in our culture mm. that says, um, well, disabled people don't have the same hopes for their life. They don't have the same emotions about their life. They mm. don't have the same need for relationship. They don't have the same need for success. Yes, they do. Mm. We've, we've just not understood that. And I think if people start to see systems transformation as actually not just transforming services, mm. but transforming the expectations, the abilities, the capacity that disabled people have and the contributions that they can make um, to our community, then mm. we start to get a head around what the system needs to look like if we're going to support and sustain that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, why is it that we expect all of our kids when they leave school are either going to go on to tertiary educational work mm -hmm. but for disabled people we don't have that expectation mm. no exactly yeah it's, it's <laughs> wrong we've got a whole workforce here that no, that nobody's tapping into yeah yeah exactly so you um was there was there anything else particularly around the the egr system that you wanted to talk to us about lorna um, no, I mean, I think the key things that, that we're learning there is personal budgets, if people can manage those, that makes a huge difference. Mm. If we can get some early investment in so that families don't get to a point of uh, almost crisis before anything happens, mm. that, make, that makes a long-term difference. Yeah. If we can start giving the confidence to providers that they can yeah. safely operate outside kind of the strict confines of mm. contract, then I think we're really beginning to yeah. develop the foundation. Mm. There are a couple of things that I think we need to invest more heavily in. Mm. We, we need a much more highly skilled workforce. Yeah. Um, because we've taught people, we've taught the workforce how to operate in a custodial care model, mm. but not how to operate in a life development model. Yeah. And we need to start to shift that. Yeah. We need to invest a lot more in building families, family leadership, family confidence, mm. family vision building, so that they hold a very hopeful uh, sense of the future. Yeah. And yeah. then start demanding that from the service system. Yes. And those are platforms that I think we still need to lay. Yeah. But the prototype has helped us to get some real clarity about that. Yeah. Yeah, because the way I see it, the the more the families feel supported and able to ask for what they need rather than just accepting what's offered. So now, hang on, we need this. Then the more likely they are to 
change the the services that are available and like you said what can we do about giving um service providers confidence to change their the, their business model how can we show them it's going well, to work well i think that um where that confidence will come from will be from the ministry really yeah. as the ministry gets its head around what does this look like yes because that's essentially who will def- ultimately define yeah. what those providers are contracted mm. to do but but we're absolutely seeing very clearly that when people have a personal budget and they're a private payer to a provider mm. then you can have a very different conversation absolutely yeah so it's a it's um, a matter of making sure that the ministry sees the significant benefits to people of having much more control over their their care and their services that's right, and because I mean the ministry has to act responsibly in terms of the public purse. Yeah. Um, so hence the prototype is about well let's let's try and learn as much as we can mm. about what's going to be effective. Now we've also got to look at this as a a generational change. This yes. is a ten year mm. change. It's not a ten months change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean we've learned some things in those ten months, but you won't necessarily see the outcome of that investment mm. for some years to come yeah and we have to have we have to be very confident that that the steps that we're taking now will actually lead to less dependent more uh, contributing more socially inclusive lives yeah, yeah. Uh, for people yeah and when it comes to long term keeping the ministry on side can be difficult especially if we have change of government <laughs> Can make well, I mean, tricky. this is this is right. I mean, for a lot of disabled people, and many because they have a a dependency mm. on public money, mm. they are subject to political will. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that we could learn from the Australian um, example is when you get a bipartisan agreement mm. between the major parties. Yeah that we cannot continue to have a group of uh, citizens living in these sorts of circumstances where they are essentially denied most of their human rights, Mm. even the most basic human rights, Mm. like where do I live and who do I live with, Um, then it does become really about, well, what's this government's capacity and what's this government's thinking? So... I think there does need to be quite a lot more work around looking at both governments. The whole country mm. has signed up to the United Nations Convention. Yes. That could be the point where we get agreement across mm. uh, politics mm. so that we know that, look, over the next 10 years, we are going to progress our way forward so that we become a contemporary have a contemporary disability support service that's not a post-institutional one mm. that essentially stopped the minute we closed those institutions mm. and hasn't advanced significantly yeah. for the majority of people. Mm. Well, I think we're just about out of time now. So thank you so much for that, Lorna. That's really interesting. And um, we will keep in touch with and see how see how things go with the... Um, the mid-central prototype and keep a close eye on that see how it's working and uh we'll yeah. sp- speak to you again in the future okay yep that'd be good thank you so much Lorna. Okay. you take care bye-bye talk to you again bye connect inform support from parent to parent 
presented by Louise Ratcliffe. Many thanks to Wintech Music and Performing Arts Department. This programme and its show notes are available for download on our website, parenttoparent.org.nz. This has been Family, Whānau and Disability from Parent to Parent. I have been your host, Johanna. We hope that you enjoyed the podcast and that you'll join us again soon.